The moments, the immediate, the, the things that we can touch. You, you can't just like throw that out at someone and say, ah, well, you need to just do better at staring at a sunset, like fucking Instagram pop psychology solutions. What's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this is a little bonus episode. Um, We got an email from someone and we felt like we couldn't adequately address it in just a response back in email form. So we decided to, with uh, his permission address it on air yeah dude yeah what do you uh yeah. if, if the main episodes are like an owl eating like a cat <laughs> what is this like the owl eating the mice this is like a field mouse episode it's a little snack yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly but a hearty is, one it's definitely protein. it's gonna be very rich in protein yeah i mean it's one of those emails that um you know a lot of times we get we get emails that are you know, they're not general, right? They're kind of very specific to the person or like individual. I mean, I guess most of them are actually general because a lot of them are philosophically oriented questions. But this one just seemed to be um, one that would be really beneficial for us to talk to out in the open because it's expressing some anxieties and frustrations that I, I think are quite common for post-evangelical, post-religious types yeah yeah exactly it's um it can feel in the midst of it very alienating and therefore make you feel very isolated but if there's one thing we've experienced i think when doing this podcast it's that man we are definitely not the only people who have similar experiences intellectually emotionally um and otherwise lots of people out there have this um these experiences so you're not alone yeah, I mean, I know it's selection bias, but I do feel like every single person that reaches out to me in the DMs has been like fucked up somehow by religion. So it's obviously my then my view on the world is skewed because people are only going to reach <laughs> out to me if they have yeah. like similar affinities as I do. But, you know, I'm like, Jesus, man. But it, this is why I, I got to start my home church. Like... <laughs> I say that jokingly, but also partially serious, but this is why there needs to be some sort of refuge for people, which is, um, I'm not sure that, that we often have access to such like social resources, you know? Yeah. I mean, regardless of the selection bias, just the fact that, I mean, I don't know what you think, but it seems like at least the, um, interactions that, that I have that we get together the vast, the majority of them for sure are around this one central issue. Like that seems to be the yep. issue that people grasp or grab onto um, so, so much to, this, to um, for the sake of actually, you know, like wanting to reach out or email mm. us or whatever, right? whatever other issues um, people like up at the podcast or are able to, to empathize with. That seems to be the one that really connects people the most. So it's, it's clearly a, a deep seated issue for a lot of people. Yeah. So, okay, let's um, get into the email. Yeah, dude? Yeah. So we're not going to say the emailer's name, um, but he gave us permission to, to read a portion of the email on the podcast. So we could then respond to it in detail. Um, some, for some context, he is uh, similar to us, grew up in an evangelical church, 
did some schooling to become a pastor, then changed his mind during that process. Um, and he said that now he teaches MMA, which I'm sure is partially why you're involved, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he says, anyway, basically the problem is I have this constant feeling that everything is pointless. Sometimes I cannot think about it for a while and it will kind of go away, but eventually the thought or feeling comes back. Every time it does, I feel like it gets worse too. Right now, I'm up after sitting awake for two hours because this idea is giving me anxiety to the point it's hard to sleep. It feels like I have no agency, or if I do, it doesn't really matter. I thought because I'm a Christian that I would get some sort of uh, inherent meaning from that. But even with that, the meaning is at best obscured or too difficult to know. It says we uh, have a purpose, but only gives you a vague sense of what that is or gives you a general purpose not to not anything specific. And then he um, basically just says uh, he's not really sure he can um, explain it further than that and wondering if we have any uh, responses or things that might help with this situation. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because we literally have a segment on the podcast, right, about whether or not life is meaningless. And I think it's very romantic and easy for someone to just simply say, ah, it's the sticky leaves, you know, that crumple underneath that are fun. That's that's where you find meaning in potentially a meaningless world or that, um, you know, that it's family, man, or that it's, you know, just find good projects that you can throw yourself into, which are all the stock answers that I could give, right? Like I just finished reading some poetry by Walt Whitman that for me gave me a love, an, an affirmative type of love for I mean, not that gave me, I think I've always had it, but helped reaffirm, kind of stimulated uh, a, an affirmative love for the material world, for the sensations of the world, for the little, the the moments, the immediate, the, the things that we can touch, right? But I, you, you can't just like throw that out at someone and say, ah, well, you need to just do better at uh, staring at a sunset, like fucking Instagram pop psychology solutions, right? Or just remember that every day is precious and you're precious and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, or, you know, make Monday your bitch kind of stuff, man. Just remember, like, it, it's all on you. It's your individual responsibility to make sure you find meaning. And and that's the romantic and maybe even the bad legacy that comes out of existentialism that I think has been weaponized within a particular socioeconomic regime, you know, the one that we call neoliberalism, that you are on. And, and the self-help kind of paradigm that bastardizes totally um actually there's uh i think her last name is horny which is a perfect name for her as a psychologist but <laughs> she i think god i can't remember her first name i want to say Catherine horny but anyway it's it's horny and um she's one of these people that is really famous for popularizing self-esteem in the 20th century and like the the kind of pop psychology industry that culminates in like oprah and in like now I think Instagram culture that um, I think it's been weaponized and it's it's so ubiquitous, but I don't I don't think that it's giving us the resources because and this is where I'm going to get philosophical. I think that in um, the wake of the death of God, in the wake of the death of meaning, those ultimate foundations that were meant to give us some sort of fixed position that can ground us we do feel lost at sea. And Nietzsche writes about this, right? Like figures that that boast even in the death of God are like, who put us in this terrible situation? Like Nietzsche's madman is a madman 
freaking out. And he even says that. He's like, shit, what, not shit, because Nietzsche doesn't write shit, but basically like, what are we going to do now that we have this terrible freedom that we've been unmoored and detached from any sort of uh, anchor, right? And it's fucking difficult is the first thing I want to say. And I'm not sure that there's an easy solution that we can just throw at somebody by saying, well, you just need to read more poetry and go to more concerts and find something better that you can invest your time into. I think we do need to do those things, but I don't think that's the easy solution. Does that make sense, dude? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the problem that I have, I mean, just most practically with this, like throw yourself into projects or like get out there and do stuff and you'll be fine is the kind of person who's facing this sort of existential practical dilemma what they're lacking is the motivation to do right. those things or right. to care about them. So telling them to go do them doesn't actually resolve or anything. It's like telling a blind person to see, right? It's like, well, that's not going to help. Um, so yeah, it seems to get the cart before the horse a little bit, right? Like someone has to actually care about projects to then find meaning in them, right? And so if if you're sort of barred from finding meaning in projects because you just you're just like lacking at that moment care for anything, like symptoms of um, depression or something, then yeah, the, the, that easy solution of just throw yourself into stuff, of course, is not going to work. Um, but that doesn't mean that, like, the, the, that you can't resolve the problem, that there's no way to, to fix it, right? But it is, it does make it like a, a special kind of problem where the, the more obvious solution is the very thing that's, that you're barred from, uh, from doing, which is why it seems so insurmountable in the moment, right? Because that, the obvious easy solution, which works the rest of the time when you're not feeling that way, is not available to you. Mm. Yeah, I had a friend actually that I was chatting with the other day and she said something along the lines of how she's just in a funk at the moment. And I think that's a nice way of, of somebody saying that they're kind of like down in the dumps, right? And then she even mentioned like, oh shit, even like my libido is depressed at the moment. And it was really interesting because... You know, this, it's when when she was kind of describing that in that moment, she has like no motivation to do anything, which is really shitty because this is one of those times of year where you think, okay, you've got Hanukkah, you've got Christmas, you've got the New Year, you've got uh, joyful music, and you've got like a pressure almost to be happy. But the problem is, is if you are in a funk, like you don't even have the desire to be happy. Like you can't be happy. You become impotent. You like lose some vitality and it's, um, it almost becomes, I think, heightened even during this time of year for whatever reason, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's so funny cause, um, I don't think I've ever experienced this kind of thing that we're describing. Uh, I think I'm just really lucky with the fact that I kind of get really excited about the holidays, mm. for instance, just to give just one example. Um, and I love being with family. I have a good family that everybody in the family I love and get along with and, never have any, any issues of that sort. And I don't get um, down in the dumps in that same way or in the, in the way in which you just sort of lack motivation or care for things. Um, and so it's, it's hard for me to truly empathize in the sense of like that which requires phenomenological understanding, mm. right? Uh, like knowing what it's like to experience that. I don't have that. But so many people that I'm not close to do, uh, and that, that seems to be the common refrain, right? Is that, you have this meta desire, right? A desire to desire mm -hmm. things, right? 
So it's like an intellectual or cognitive sense in which you have this meta desire yeah. to care and to be. I want. I want to want like to care. Things. I just don't want to care. Like not even that I don't care and that I don't want to care, but it's like I. I just want to want to care. <laughs> Right. And that conflict with the meta desire to care and then the lacking of an actual desire to care for anything specific. That's what creates, I think, the real problem because you have this conflict of you know, meta desire and desire. And there's no obvious way to resolve that because the meta desire isn't fixing the desire itself. Right. Just having the meta desire to want to care for things um, doesn't actually make you want to care for anything by itself. So it's a conflict at that like cognitive level, uh, it seems like. And, um, but you can't fix it cognitively, yeah. right? Like you can't convince yourself, um, to care about things. But what I think is really important mm-hmm. about that though, is while it seems insurmountable when you put the problem that way, it actually, I think points to a really important thing, which is, well, why would you have this meta desire to care for things to even recognize that the way you're feeling right now is a problem that needs to be resolved in some way, unless it's the fact that those things are good. Like you recognize those things are good, either intellectually or you like through your mm. memory, um, thinking back to times when you did actually get fulfillment and meaning from those projects, probably more so the latter, right? Mm. Don't want to over philosophize it by saying it's all like cognitive intellectual. Um, that tells you that you actually believe those things are good, but that at this moment, there's this weird conflict between the meta desire and desire. So not only does that mean that it's it's surmountable eventually, right? Maybe not in the moment, but eventually. But it also leads you that, you know, you recognize that those things are good and that they're worthwhile and that they're worth caring about. You just are unable to, to muster the care at this moment. Um, so there's like a malfunctioning going on in like your desiring complex or whatever. So there's some, there's some like, I think some like minor hope in that recognition. The real problem would be if you don't even see the problem with feeling mm-hmm. this way, right? Like, no, this is just the way that I'm supposed to feel. Like a real, like full on. Yeah, then you just would look kind of like pure numbness. Right. Mm. Not even like not even recognizing that that numbness is is bad or that you shouldn't feel that way. Huh. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, that he writes about is that, you know, the idea that somehow the promise of being a Christian would provide inherent meaning, but that even in that. That there's something missing, and I I do think that that I think a lot of people who are still a part of the church experience this, and so that the death of God thing isn't just like when you personally stop believing, or if you personally stop believing, or you start having doubts, or you move away from the confessional church. But I think that that even in the church, there are a lot of people who still struggle. I mean, I I know of many accounts of uh, individuals who you know had breakdowns or were dealing with anxiety um i i mean i think we can just look at some of the kind of quote great figures of the history of the church that themselves struggled with doubt you know you look at augustine read augustine's confessions Mm -hmm. for example um they are a testament to someone who was at the pinnacle of supposed religious piety but then also has like a, a a waging war within himself and then look at Paul right in the New Testament so fuck even Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard. I was gonna say even Jesus man like there's the GK G. Chesterton <laughs> line that even on the cross Jesus becomes an atheist right you know and then look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane I mean now he's going through an extreme ordeal but still right there's doubt there 
right? That's what's unreal, I think, about recognizing this. And I wonder if we don't beat ourselves up with like extra pressure because we don't we don't like reconcile ourselves with doubt. And so then we take on even a greater burden because somehow we aren't like we hold up this supposed image of the preacher that is pious and happy with the family and everything is great. And we measure ourselves against that. And then we see ourselves as even being more wretched. And then of course you have this like post Luther, post Calvin, like morose self-flagellation that only intensifies that. And we beat ourselves up because of our supposed iniquities, you know, and that that only just intensifies and deepens our guilt. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's so interesting. I have some, some like weird misgivings about the whole doubt thing because I definitely like both of us I think come from the trajectory of thinking doubt is a necessary condition of like true faith right that a faith without doubt isn't really a faith it's really more of a cover for insecurity mm. like it's a it's a way to cover for the doubt you actually have and like repress it and that's like a false faith but a, a true faith constitutively is made of doubt at least in yeah. part right um, and that comes with like Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and like all the great ones, right? Um, but then from our circles, like coming from like fundamentalist kind of circles where doubt is often frowned upon, um, at least publicly, mm. uh, doubt becomes kind of sexy, you know? It's like doubt, like the guy who says that he that he doubts and is willing to admit it is like, it's always like a, a dude who mm. says this, right? He's like the dude in the leather jacket who smokes a cigarette. Oh, like yeah. Like, and then people are like, wow, you're so right? brave. I know, right? To, to doubt. So that always became like this cool wow, thing. Yeah. Like the one person who, well, you can't really, this person has like a powerful position, right? So they can kind of risk a little bit. It's like when a politician comes up and says, you know, that they've they've made some mistakes in the past, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> as long as they don't actually have to change anything about what they do, then they can say that and score some points for admitting to some fault. It's like, uh, I think one time someone told me the best thing you can do at a conference, academic conference is say you don't know to one of the questions. Yeah, yeah. But definitely don't say it twice because that's the worst thing. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying I don't know once makes you humble, makes you look like, you know, um, you have some like uh, um, self-awareness. But if you say it twice, then actually people are stupid. Um, And doubt's kind of the same way, right? Just enough doubt makes Mm. you sexy. And so we kind of fetishize it, I think a little bit in some fundamentalist circles. Um, But... What does that transform into when you, if and when you sort of leave the faith or at least have a faith outside of the sort of institutional confines that you sort of were formed in? And it seems like a totally different thing, right? Like um, the way that the, the kind of constitutive role doubt plays in faith, I don't think I find that outside uh, of those mm. circles, like whether in political or philosophical or, or whatever kind of circles there's still obviously intellectual doubt about things, right? But you don't have that like all-encompassing faith like, trajectory. Like the like metaphysical questions, like, like res- our place in the world. Like resurrection of the yeah. dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, resurrection of the dead, God exists, yeah. stuff like that. Um, the role that doubt plays, which is like you know, humbling and, um, and stuff like that, there's different things that humble you in, in other circles, but I don't know that there's, that there's a doubt in that same way. What do you think about that? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think I mentioned this before. I, I literally want to write a book on like the politics of certainty and then a politics of doubt is what I want to call the book. Um, because I do think that 
you're not allowed to doubt. There's like no capacity to doubt in a world of technological rationality, right? You might not have all the information. You might not have all the inputs, but that's okay. That's just because that's a product of like inductive reason or something like that, right? But there's always like a certainty that we just are, we just need a little bit more information. We just need more data. So you don't doubt the method. You don't doubt the foundations upon which you stand. You just might be unsure about where you currently are in your algorithmic processes. But it doesn't allow for it. It creates a sort of a type of certainty that you must be beholden to, which is, I think, a very different vision of what is reality and who we are and what we are as human beings and how we ought to comport ourselves and orient ourselves with others and with the institutions that that condition us. And I think that actually that there's something we can learn about that, as you called it, that constitutive doubt by looking at like the Dostoevsky's and the Kierkegaard's. I look at the existentialist tradition, psychoanalysis. I think that I've, I've found good intellectual resources in there to, as Todd McGowan says, not reconcile contradiction. You don't overcome all contradiction, but rather become reconciled to contradiction, which is a very different orientation in and to the world. It's not about overcoming all of these tensions and disjunctions, but rather it's, in psychoanalytic terms, it's that adjustment to those tensions which is not, again, easy. It's easy for me to speak those words, but to really meditate on that and to live that and embody that is, I think, a very noble goal and one that I find to be extremely important and I think at the moment um, a sort of beacon almost, you know, that is kind of like that my gaze is fixed on that is guiding my trajectory. So Yeah, that's that's really good. You know, I think that, this idea of the constitutive doubt, like you look at the Kierkegaardian model, right? For Kierkegaard, the reason why faith has to include doubt um, as a necessary condition is that doubt itself is what allows faith to become faith, which is like, you know, a risk and it's a leap. And then that's the only way you can really commit to it. If you knew something for sure, it was purely an object of like um, intellectual um, assent uh, to certain knowledge, then you wouldn't actually be able to be motivated to care for it. It would just be another thing, right? So in order to be motivated to actually dedicate yourself to really commit to something fully, you have to have doubt. It's a condition of that being the case in the first place, a real commitment. Um, and so and I think that's true. And what you're saying there, I think maps on pretty neatly because I think, and this also goes to like practical matters like our emailer is talking about. If you were able to fully understand why things are meaningful and when they should be and shouldn't be and like just form a matter of intellectual sense to them then because of how human beings are and how subjectivity works then you wouldn't care for it really the only way to truly be able to care for a thing is to go through some process of this constitutive doubt right of acknowledging that maybe it isn't meaningful after all maybe it isn't hmm. worth it after hmm. all i don't know but that i don't know actually puts the steps before you to eventually mm. be able to fully commit to it. And in politics, especially, and I think in, in like our personal lives, in terms of our personal projects, that's just not available. Like no one thinks that way, right? We all think, no, 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 you have to like, have, have everything in place and fully understand, have all the arguments and 
defeat everyone else's arguments, and then you can sort of, you know, make the fire tweet that convinces everybody to become a socialist mm. or whatever, right? Mm. And that's just not how it works. Certainly isn't the way how it works in, in like religious faith, right? Um, but it really isn't the way how it works in in um, politics or in philosophy or in our personal lives. There, I think that you're right that there has to be a, a role for doubt in all these areas. And it'll look different in the different areas, right? Um, but there has to be some role there uh, for doubt, not for the sense of like, you know, a lot of like the liberal tradition has this sort of uh, humility about it that's like, well, we don't really know what the good is. So we're going to build a system that like coordinates the best amongst all of the all of the various ignorances that exist between individual subjects, mm-hmm. right? But that's like the ultimate in not doubting because <laughs> it's like, no, we all have these epistemic limitations, but we can fully know how they all coordinate together to make the best possible system without anybody really stepping over the bounds and saying what's that's good. Right. Right. So in some ways, it's like the least humble <laughs> of all systems, even though it couches. That's why I constantly there. say that it's metaphysically arrogant. It's not aware of, it, of, of those metaphysical priors and therefore it becomes, sorry, metaphysically ignorant. And then it becomes epistemologically arrogant because of that. And it, it's, it's like the person who is uh, just unaware of his or her own biases and becomes the dogmatist, you know, and they aren't even aware that they're a dogmatist. It's like the, the nice Christian person, not the one who's the asshole that's like beating you over the head with the Bible, but the one who like is the true believer, you know? And it's like, well, you're just, you just don't even know about these other foundations, and therefore that's why you end up becoming arrogant in your kind of supposed certainty. Yeah, and that, you know, maps onto the same stuff from the, from the email that we're talking about, you know, is there isn't an easy answer, Um it's a process, right? Not a destination that we're talking yeah. about here, how to engage in the process meaningfully and effectively. And in life, you know, sometimes you're going to have like, obviously like psychiatric issues that you really need to, to address the medical level and to seek help that way. And then other times you'll have areas where it's just like a, you know, a temporary interstitial thing in your life. And everyone goes through it at some point in their life, maybe multiple times where they just lose that, lose that connection to other people and to the various projects they're engaged in into the world. And, you know, there isn't a pill you can pop necessarily to just make that all go away. Well, maybe you can, but then that creates other problems of its own. Um, but recognition of the fact that this is a, this is a real thing, like this happens and it's part of the sort of doubt about what a good human life is. Like if we knew exactly what it meant to live a good human life, then we, one, we wouldn't need philosophy, mm. right? But two, um, we wouldn't even really be human beings at that point. We'd be some other kind of like all-knowing species. Mm. So given what we are, we shouldn't be surprised that these kind of things prop up, right? And doesn't mean that they're unimportant, they're super important, but they are in and of themselves a recognition of like human subjectivity. Yeah. Um, and that's important in and of itself, being able to recognize what you're lacking in the moment. That's a mm. good thing. Is there anything in particular as like a final note that has helped you primarily deal with these things? I mean, like I said, I, I don't really, I don't know that I've ever really gone through something. unlike what the email describes. Certainly been sad down in the dumps times when um, I wasn't fully motivated to do the things that I usually am. But that, um, that deeper longing of a sense that there is no meaning, or maybe like, coming out of of the confessional church 
you know, helping you in that transition. Yeah, I think, um, and you can speak to this too. I completely lacked the support network um, outside of like my family. But, you know, at the time I was living abroad and I think for a lot of your period of going through that process, you lived abroad Mm -hmm. too, right? And that makes it so much harder to not be around people who care for you. Um, So, yeah, I mean, if you have the privilege of having people around you in close proximity who care about you, it can be hard to to want to do this or to make yourself do this, but just to being around people mm-hmm. who care can can help with that. Um, and that means, you know, having good people who are also in close proximity, which can be difficult for a lot of people, but that's certainly a thing. Yeah, and for me, it wasn't even necessarily being around other people who are experiencing the same negative passions as me, but even just being around like good people like oh yeah people who are just about stuff who are not exactly yeah just about stuff definitely even preferably not people who are yes yes like obviously you want to empathize with people who are but then to also have people who are not is helpful as well yeah not not because it's a distraction but i think because it kind of creates you use the word connection a minute ago and i think we say that in like a sentimental sense oftentimes but i'm going to say that in like the ontological sense like i think deleuze and guattari and the idea that they talk about like you know the wasp and the flower the bee and the flower that kind of like come together and they create this machine right this machinic assemblage they call it that as they come together like one's vitality is constituted in its connection with the other's vitality and vice versa right and then they detach and then they go and they make other connections later on the breeze that comes and carries the pollen from the flower or the dew that follows that falls from the tree onto the flower like those are all different connections that are creating different like domains or intensities of potency and then it's the same with the bee the bee then goes to a different flower goes and communicates with its other bee friends and then whatever the fuck it's doing i don't understand it Uh, the phenomenological experience of a bee so i can't speak to it but like that's it man is is finding those connections for me i think was the thing that helped me because it one distracted me so that i wasn't just sitting in my room you know mortifying my sin so to speak um and beating myself up but then two i think it also introduced me to other interests and other things and to other aspects of life and to like this the, the the vital impulse that might be there that was kind of contagious for me and um and then also there's just something like primal about empathic connection you know and i mean everybody has the the, the triggers that make them thrive a little bit more for me it's a joint a few beers and some really good music and i'm feel like i'm in ecstasy um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, those things were important for me. And, and I'll be honest though, I, I started, and I, I know you did too, but like I started moving away while I was still a part of the confessional church. For me, it was going to that emerging church with well, a quote emerging church. It wasn't an emerging church, but Cop- Copper mm-hmm. Hill where I felt a freedom, you know, like I feel oftentimes restrained even now from my dad. I had a buddy that say, oh, maybe the reason that you live away and that you moved abroad and that you don't come back is because you can be free abroad. And I was like, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot for the last year or so. Because when I'm home, I feel like sometimes I'm walking on eggshells. There are certain things I don't tell my dad. I can't tell my dad for fear of judgment. And and it's not even like he has some sort of control over my life, but it's just he's my dad and I want to please him. And I know that I can't because I'm not like serving Jesus in the way that he wants me to. And so therefore, I just don't even bring things up. And so when we talk now, we just don't even acknowledge things. And 
living abroad and living away, I can do what I want, be what I want, say what I want without any fear that it's going to be smashed down, right? And there's something that I found even when I was in the church that allowed me to kind of like in Copper Hill because it was a safe place. And I know we use the word safe space and I don't mean that in like the loaded cultural term, but it was literally a safe space where I was outside of the judgment of the evangelical eye because I knew I had other people there that would prop me up if I felt that being beaten down, you know? And it was a safety net for me outside of the judgmental watchful eye of the big other of the church of, you know, the the, the president of our university, the church history, orthodoxy, the confessions, my family, whatever. And... I've just expanded that now into a sort of even like post-religious setting, which is my vagabonding, my bohemian vagabonding around the world, which is my own like romantic church in my own mind, you know? <laughs> yeah, dude. And you know, I'm, it's so important to have those things. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's such a, like a, like a, what you'd call like a Bill Maurism, like a segment of the, of liberals who just castigate all religion as being like one monolithic evil in the world, Right. And then kind of wonder why um, millennials and, and Gen Zers are going through like this uh, seemingly insurmountable bouts of of depression and anxiety yeah. and uh, in response to all the economic and political concerns of the day. And you know, it's it's obviously not exhaustively this, but part of it is you know millennials and Gen Zers have kind of en masse left the church because they see usually it's, it's the hypocrisy of their parents, right? Like the, I read that the number one cause of people leaving the church is witnessing hypocrisy at an intimate level. Mm. Like with people that you know well, um, being hypocritical, that is what make, like causes you to lose your faith. And usually uh, people um, leave the faith or kind of become disinterested and then come back when they have kids. But millennials are not doing that. And it's kind of like this, this kind of statistically, like a statistical outlier mm. that millennials are not coming back after having kids, not raising their kids in the same religion that they were really, uh, raised mm. in. And, and I think that this doesn't mean that like religion's like monolithically good, obviously, but there is something missing when you grew up in that uh, kind of community, um, which has some degrees of support and some degrees of judgment you know, intermixed, not often more of the latter than the former. But when you leave the judgment zone, you also leave the support zone. And it's probably worth it. I know for me, it's worth it. To, to lose both than to keep both. But um, that doesn't mean it's not a loss. It absolutely is still a loss. Mm. And I think we should recognize it as such, not pretend that it's like infantile to want that support system or that it's like wishing to be back into the womb or something like that. Totally. Like, uh, just, just need to be hugged or some like, you know, being a pussy or something. Yeah. No, like that's a real thing that everybody needs. And the fact that we lack it outside the church is a real problem. Yeah. And then of course, to get political, if we are going to try to build a state, build communities, build nations, build larger sort of segments of populations living together, it would really be beneficial for us to try to create those social support systems, which means that you have safety nets that are social safety nets. Um, how are they propped up? How are they funded? How are they developed? How are they maintained? Those are all difficult strategic questions. But nevertheless, I think part of the reason that we're feeling that malaise at a heightened point is that we live in a system that, like you just said, says you're just a pussy if you don't get this. Like suck it up and just, you know, 
make Monday your bitch kind of mentality. Just suck it up and throw yourself into your work. You know, manage your portfolio, your your capital assets, become a better entrepreneur of the self, rely on yourself kind of bullshit. And so that's why we get kind of stranded is that we have a society that itself has been fractured. There's this shift towards individuality, like a radical individuality, but yet there's no real way in which, I mean, that, that, that we can deal with the fact that we have like crumbled our social support systems, or at least we've felt that we have crumbling support systems. Whether or not those support systems were ever perfect in the past is obviously, I don't want to be too nostalgic about like 1950s, uh, you know, New Deal era capitalism or something like that. But nevertheless, they're you know, we don't have our like rotary clubs and our bowling clubs and our unions and, uh, you know, the things that were binding people together of previous eras because we are in a much more fractured society. And so the question is, is how can we now rebuild social safety nets in a new era? And that, I think, is a very noble project to think through and to consider and to strive towards at a political level. Yeah, absolutely. So I think kind of to sum up, I think what we're, we're saying is there's obviously no easy answer to these problems. And that's why so many people go through them and why they seem so insurmountable because they are these huge issues. But recognition of the fact that it's a problem is like the first step. And it's a good thing to recognize that, right? You're actually in touch with your humanity when you recognize the fact that you're lacking and that you're suffering um, by not being in this position of not being able to care about things or lacking meaning. Um, and then the project from there is, is to build up those things. Yeah. And it's super hard and a lot of people unfairly don't have access to doing that the way other people do. And that sucks, really sucks. Uh, and should be recognized as such. But that is the project, right? At the institutional level, at the um, public level, at the private level, with individual people. Um, it can happen at all those levels, right? Um, they all influence each other and uh, are um, symbiotic. Um, and that's the project, is to build those things. Yep, yep, yep. So thanks for the email, brother. Um, you know, definitely reach out to us anytime with questions and things like that. You know, we are not psychologists. We're not therapists. We're just dudes who have studied philosophy and have similar experiences. So definitely, I would also recommend to go seek professional help. Um, I have been to a therapist, and I have had a tremendous gain in being able to talk with uh, someone who is professionally trained to help me deal with some of these things at an individual level. So I definitely recommend that as well. I know that especially for dudes, we might think, nah, dude, I'm cool, I'm fine. Or we might even think like, no, it's not that serious. I don't need that. And I think that was for me the one that I'm like, yo, I'm not depressed. Like, I'm okay. But then I was kind of like, well, but that th maybe that's just my stumbling block. I'm, I'm just being resistant, you know? So I would definitely recommend to try and find someone that you can talk to and you don't have to find the perfect person. Just sometimes even just going and meeting with someone, you know, just to open up that door, to kind of open up that crack uh, is uh, is beneficial. But yeah, that's the last thing I'll say. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Well, we love you guys. Email us if you need, if you have any questions. Uh, we'll do the best we can to address our emails and uh, to, to kind of wade through issues like this. Um, and then hopefully just the series of stuff that we're constantly working through on the episode can... Uh, can arm us with ammunition to be reconciled to contradiction rather than needing to uh, overcome it all and fix everything perfectly. Yeah.